Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause, and I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have a special guest today, so let's get right at it. Rick Emmett is a solo artist, a guitarist, a poet, a songwriter, a teacher, a Canadian Music Industry Hall of Famer, and is probably best known as the co-singer and guitar player of Triumph, the gold and platinum-selling rock trio who lit up radios in the 1970s and 80s with songs like this. Rick Emmett left Triumph in 1988 to pursue a solo career and released records in a variety of styles, including rock, blues, jazz, classical, bluegrass, and flamenco. He's won a Canadian Smooth Jazz Award for Guitarist of the Year and has now written a book called Lay It on the Line, a backstage pass to rock star adventure, conflict, and triumph, which is available now wherever you buy fine books. In this conversation, we talk about the memoir, objective perspective of a career while you're inside it, while you're living it, his favorite guitar players, and much, much more. Here's Rick Emmett. Congratulations on Lay It on the Line, a backstage pass to rock star adventure, conflict, and triumph. <laughs> How's that for a it, subtitle? That, the, you know, I, definitely the marketing and promotion people had some input. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the word triumph is kind of in larger letters and it's in gold. And I think it stands out. And I think that's probably important for the marketing of the book. Absolutely. Although I, I, I hasten to point out that the Triumph chapter is but one of 16 in the book, you know. Absolutely. This is not a book all about uh, Triumph. It's it's an interesting memoir in the sense that it, it feels a little different from a lot of other memoirs. There's lots of advice in here, which I thought was really cool uh, for young people that might be eyeing an, uh, a career in the music industry or just good lessons for leading a, a creative life. So it's not a, and then I was born in a small town and, you know, whatever. It's, it's It doesn't begin that way. It doesn't uh, play out that way. And I thought that was really cool. I have read in an interview with you recently where you said, I had no idea how hard it was uh, to write a memoir. So how did you approach writing this book? Because it is a little different than a regular memoir. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I had... Uh... A, a nice chunk of uh, resource material because I'd had a members forum on my website for years. And so all of my posts, I, you know, talked to my uh, web mistress and said, Hey, Adrian, can you, you know, pull all that stuff together and put it in one file and send it to me. And it was like 5,000 single spaced pages, you know? Wow. So it was like, look, cause I've had that things run for a couple of decades, you know? Yeah. So I had that and I knew that that was all the questions that, you know, fans really cared about. They, they'd already asked them. I'd already answered them. 
you know, some of them dozens sometimes, you know. <laughs> um, the other thing was I, I did a lot of research. I read other rock star memoirs and, and um, so tried to get a feel for what, you know, what the market bears, what, what you know. Um, yeah, so there was all of that. Uh, and then there's the standard things that you're, you're if you're going to say, okay, this has been my life. Right. There's got to be stuff where you're going, okay, so where, where did it come from? Where did my parents come from? Where did my grandparents come from? Like, so there had to be a chapter that was, you know, all of that background stuff. But then as you, as you've pointed out, you know, I was a teacher for a couple of decades, you know, at a college level teaching music business and songwriting. And, and I thought, well, those are two chapters right there for sure. And then of course the passports to my universe were, you know, these guys, yeah. you know, and, and, um, and so for people that can't see, you're pointing to the guitars of rock of a very impressive rock of guitars right behind you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and I mean, you only ever need one at a time, but nevertheless, I do require <laughs> several dozen just to be happy, um, which that's probably a disease. I'll admit. Um, anyhow. So, there, that was the stuff I was kind of going, okay, guitars, songs, uh, my life, uh, it, I, I, you know, and the chapters then sort of started to make themselves evident to me. Mm -hmm. But the hard work is to self-edit. You know, that's that's the hardest thing of all, how you go, well, I'm sorry, but this one's going, you know, the, the, just going through the pictures that go in the picture thing at the back, there's like right. 20 odd pages. Of, and I thought, oh, they'll give me the standard sort of seven or eight pages in the middle of the book. But ECW Press was really, you know, uh, kind and, and nice about it. They said, no, no, let's let's include these. But I mean, even then, there's, you know, dozens of pictures that they're hitting the, you know, cutting room floor and you're going, oh, geez, you know, that would have been a cool one to have in there. You're listening to Rick Emmett on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Lay It on the Line, A Backstage Pass to Rockstar Adventure, Conflict and Triumph, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Yeah, and every picture tells a story. And that's, you sort of, that becomes the thing. You, you're looking for stories, you know. Well, in the book, you say that it's often impossible uh, to get the objective perspective of a career when you're inside it, living it day to day. So I guess time has provided you with some sort of perspective. Uh, but when did you realize that you were thinking about your life and your career a little differently? Uh, well, I think I, I, maybe I think the memoir makes this kind of evident that I was always kind of that kind of guy. I was a little bit more sort of uh analytical and and self-aware than your average rock star certainly mm -hmm. the ones that i met you know they were just kind of on the roller coaster ride and, and having yeah. a great old time hanging know? on for dear life yeah 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 you know and i'm going well i don't know if if you know if i'm in it for that you know um so i always had that about me but um certainly you know once you get the other side of 70 <laughs> you know and you're and you're going okay there's uh, most of it's behind me. There's a very little bit ahead. You know, I still have some chapters ahead of me. And I am one of those kind of people that thinks about the present and the future. Mm -hmm. And I don't really like to be looking back on the past very much. It's, yep. it's not really in my nature to be celebrating my wonderful successes when I feel more humble and modest than that about chasing this infinite thing of music, you know, of writing and being creative that, you know, I'm constantly feeling the spiritual kind of nature of uh, the aesthetic nature of, of the things that uh, I'm involved in. So, 
you know, I the, the whole idea of writing a memoir and looking back, there was a, a side of me that went, oh, you know, but I'll, I'll, God's honest truth. I had written a book of poetry mm-hmm. and when I was shopping it, I went, no one's going to want to put out a book of poetry by some <laughs> old rock star. But when I talked to ECW Press, I said, hey, the, my initial pitch was if you'll put out my book of poetry, I will give you a memoir. And they went, okay, we'll give you a deal then. <laughs> you know, so I mean, <laughs> And we made a joke earlier on about the marketplace and and the, you know the the writing of subtitles in order to hit it. But I mean the, that's the truth of the whole situation, right? Like uh, if you're going to decide, oh well, I'm going to try to make my past life public. I'm, I'm I you know I'm going to try and mine my uh, experiences and stories in order to put something out there. But the other the flip side of that is, yeah, but what do my grandkids think of me? And, you know, can I get this right? Can I clean up the language? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? So when you're writing this, you're not just writing about your life. You're writing about the lives of your bandmates, uh, your romantic partners. You're, you're like, you're writing about a lot of people. And yeah. uh, I suppose you had to be lawyered up for part of that, maybe. Uh, but you also have to have an eye toward who's going to be reading it. And you mentioned your grandkids. So you have to... Yes. Think about that. But you want to be authentic at the same time and 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 tell the true story. Exactly. So, you know, now what you're doing is answering your own question, which was, why is it hard? And that's why it's hard. You know, you don't want to hurt anybody. And especially in the triumph situation, you know, um, I have come to terms with uh, 20 years. We didn't talk to each other. We were, you know, and I was angry and and, and, uh, bitter. And I carried that around like, this is mine. I own this. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm going to carry this to my grave. And um, the, the, I, I was able to get past that, you know, which was a big thing in my life that I was able to say, no, reach for the more virtuous part of yourself, even though, you know, your ego and your ambition and, and you, all of these kinds of things keep getting in the way. So that was a lesson I'd learned. And I wanted to make sure that the book would be clear about that. And then, of course, I don't want to hurt Mike and mm-hmm. Gil. You know, I want to s- sort of celebrate what we had. But I also want to tell my truth. And so you're trying to balance. Now, I'm going to give you this insight. One of my beta readers, a guy named Terrence Hart Young, my best friend since grade 11. And Terrence ended up being a a member of parliament and a member of provincial parliament in his life. He'd done both. Uh, And so he was, uh, uh, you know, a politician who understood, well, this is how you get along in caucus. Uh, This is how you get along with the folks that are on the other side of the aisle. Oh, this is what it feels like when you put your foot in your mouth, you know. Yeah. So I had him beta read the Triumph chapter, I don't know, six times, five or six times, as I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. And he was the guy that sort of said, look, you want to work your way to, you know, the positive things. Mm-hmm. And 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 yes, you're going to have some of this, but, but don't write it this way, Rick. Don't say that. They'll never talk to you again. You know, say that. Like, and of course, uh, Terence's dad had been, you know, a canon in the Anglican Church. So there was that kind of uh, Christian uh, moral kind of uh, value that he would say, you know, Rick, I, Rick, I understand you're agnostic, but still, yeah. you know, this morality is a good morale. And I would go, you're right. You're right. Okay, you're right. Do you think that you learned things about yourself by looking to the past? I know that uh, you are someone who is probably only most excited about the next thing, right? Like a lot of creative people. But when you look to the past, 
particularly things that you haven't thought about for a, a great deal of time, I think that you can gain new perspective on it and have that slap of the forehead kind of moment where you go, why didn't this occur to me 15 years ago? Yes, exactly. You know, and I think writing is one of the beautiful things that allows you to sort of, you know, um, you're in a moment and uh, you wish you'd said something, you know, yep. and then, you know, a day later you go, oh, I should have said this. You go, well, you can write that, you know, and you can figure out how to form it into your story about, mm. you know, uh, what your life was like, um, it, which in a way is you're not trying to revise history, but you are trying to revise the way the attitude you have about what happened mm -hmm. so that you do become sort of, you know, uh, a better person, uh, 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 a kinder, gentler <laughs> you know jimmy carter kind of person you know yeah. well you said recently in an interview that i saw i'm not afraid anymore to speak truth what am i saving it for were you afraid of things the truth the real story i, I I'm, I'm just wondering about clarifying that a little bit yeah i i think i mean you touched on it uh, you know there's certain truths about my marriage that I would never want to make public because right. I have too much uh, respect uh, for my wife and, and her own dignity and, 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 you know, the life that she has, you know, my kids, uh, the guys in triumph, you know, um, th there are certain things where uh, I'm going to respect um, the integrity of other people and put it ahead of my own. Mm -hmm. So even though I might go, God damn, I want to, I want to tell, you know, I want to tell the truth. I want to tell the story. You go, yeah, but discretion is the better part of valor. And these are all cliches. Nevertheless, they become cliches because they're true. Yeah. So many times, you know, that you go, no, that that's the truth. Yeah. Sometimes cliches are cliches because they're absolutely true. And I think that you really uh, often find that when you are introspective and you start thinking about your life in relationship to other people and to the world that you're living in, you realize, oh, there's a reason why these truisms have lasted for, you know, decades or years or, you know, whatever it might be. It's uh, true. I'll, let me let me tell you another humbling thing about writing a memoir, the process of it, that, mm -hmm. that about learning about yourself, what it teaches you. So uh, you're looking back on all these things and you're realizing that there are certain things that happened in your life and it was just pure dumb luck. It was just pure <laughs> random chance happenstance. Like this was the truth that I arrived at at so many pretty large junctures of my life and good things, bad things. Like when I was 17 years old and playing football and I got my knee torn up and mm -hmm. my ACL was no longer in existence. It was like, well, that changed the course of my life. And when you're looking back on it, you're realizing, oh yeah, took a left turn there. Yeah. Ooh, big right turn there. <laughs> yeah. um, what books did you look to? Uh, there's a number of rock and roll memoirs and biographies that um, I think I, I count among some of the best books I've ever read. Just Kids by Patti Smith is yep. a, a, an incredible read. Springsteen's biography. Uh, and I love a quote from that where he says, yeah, don't get into this line of business because you had a regular childhood. So that <laughs> explains so much. Uh, Keith Richards' uh, biography, also uh, pretty terrific. And uh, Chronicles by Bob Dylan. Those are five that I can think of off the top of my head. 
and you named my three of my top ones, the Patty yes. Smith, Bruce Springsteen, and for different reasons, you know. You're listening to Rick Emmett on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Lay It on the Line, A Backstage Pass to Rockstar Adventure, Conflict and Triumph, is available now wherever you buy fine books. The Chronicles, Bob Dylan, like I've read everything about Bob Dylan and that Bob Dylan has written himself just because he is one of the greatest writers, you know, of my generation. And uh, or the generation that's just slightly boomer ahead of me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but nevertheless, uh, you know, I, I was in the music business, so I was constantly in the shadow of you know Bob Dylan and Paul McCartney. Really, you know, uh, although the Beatles, there, you can stretch that out and widen it out a little bit. Although you know, history maybe has not been as kind to Lennon as it has been to McCartney. Yeah. And you know, in the initial stages, it wasn't that way because Lennon died young and then and tragically. And so, you know, he's going to get the benefit of the doubt in that short run. But McCartney has managed to, you know, survive and thrive mm -hmm. for a long time that you realize, oh, man. So, you know, those are the things that I read. Now, I read the Paul Simon book and I can't mm -hmm. remember who wrote that, but it was an excellent book. Yeah. Um, and uh, and Joni Mitchell, anything about Joni, like, you know, I'm going to try to sink my teeth into that because she is uh, an extraordinary artist. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so those would be the ones that. Yeah. But but the Springsteen book was good because yeah. it, I think he really did write it. There was no ghostwriter there. I think I, 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 somebody that 100 yeah, percent agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and And there was a real sort of honesty and integrity to his voice in that, which I really appreciate. The Richards one. Maybe, you know, I, I think he had a lot of sitting down, being interviewed, transcribe the interview, clean it up. You know, there was a lot of that. And so and a lot of rock star memoirs are like that. And I kind of go, OK, well, you know, uh, I'm not really interested in that. I'm interested in what this artist has yeah. to say about their art. You know, the, I found the Clapton one really disappointing. I learned more about Eric Clapton from the Ronnie Wood memoir than I did from Clapton's, you know. <laughs> Well, how does this memoir lay it on the line, a backstage pass to rock star adventure, conflict and triumph, uh, compared to the documentary Triumph Rock and Roll Machine? So if I've seen that, which I have, came out uh, last year, I think, or the year before, uh, have I have I heard the stories? Do I need to buy the book? No, uh, you haven't heard the stories, and yet you need to buy the book. And uh, <laughs> the, the reason is because the, the Triumph thing, first of all, a documentary, whoever's making it, you're getting their uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's banger films, you know, and what they're trying to do is take, you know, 45 odd years and fit it into a 90 minute, you know, yeah. uh, broadcast window, you know. So th there's going to be stuff that it doesn't happen. Of course, the other thing is I don't own the Triumph name. I, you know, I, I'm not part of that brand. And, and, I'm not, and so the final cuts of the of documentaries and stuff, Mike and Gil are the ones that are overseeing that, not me. You know, I am, I'm contributing and I'm being a good guy and I'm going, hey, yeah, sure. Come back and interview me five times, which they did, by the way. Mm -hmm. Anybody that ever thinks they're going to be in a documentary and not get interviewed after they've gone to everybody else and then come back so they can put the camera on you and go, so you know what this guy said? He said this, what do you think about that? <laughs> you go, oh man, they're, they're building their narrative by, yeah. you know, ping-ponging, you know, which that's what happens in documentaries. In yeah. my book, you know, I didn't do a lot of ping ponging. You know, I was, uh, I it, it's me and it and it's my voice and, um, yeah. I mean, yes, I self edited, but uh, I felt compelled to tell my story about me 
and Triumph was going to be one of 16 chapters. Yeah. There's a, a, a section of the book where you uh, start, I think the first line of the chapter is, some things only a rock star can tell you. And <laughs> I've often wondered what it would be like to walk out on stage in front of 10,000 people or more and just hear that rush, right? What does that feel like? What do, What is it like? I've never, I've been in the audience, but I've never been on the stage. So tell me, uh, and I'm sure that's one of the things only a rock star can tell you. So tell me uh, a couple of things that only a rock star can tell us. Well, I mean, I know what it's like. Uh, and there's a story in there about um, being a kid and going to Maple Leaf hockey games at Maple Leaf Gardens and sitting in the end blues, you know, as a little kid. And then, you know, on a night in 1978, I got to walk out onto a stage in the concert pool at Maple Leaf Gardens. And it was our building. My name, you know, the band I was in was up on the marquee and I stood there at soundcheck and I looked up and I could see that seat that I sat in when I was a kid. And you're just going like, I'm, I'm telling you the story now and I'm getting goosebumps in my body because I remember that moment of, holy crap, who gets to have this kind of moment? Mm -hmm. Do I deserve to have this moment? Like, but I'm having it, you know? So, and I had that so many times in my life. I know what it's like to, um, Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna bang off a bunch, okay? Uh, walk out on the stage with Joe Louis Arena when they first built Joe Louis Arena. We were one of the first bands to play there. The band, the the building's been torn down now, but nevertheless, that shows you how old I'm getting. But <laughs> so uh, we walked out, and uh, I think it was maybe uh, Magic Power, the beginning, of maybe after the drum solo. I can't remember, but everybody in the building had their Bic lighters. And it was 17,000 people in this, in this, you know, it was just a sea of, oh my godness, yeah. you know, that you're, and this, this, as you say, this roar that's kind of coming at you, that's just like, and there's times where, uh, okay, I'm going to give you another, this is not me, but it, there, as a story in my book, uh, I played the uh, Phoenix uh, Concert Theater in Toronto, and it was a guitar night, the Night of a Thousand Guitars, it was part of the uh, Toronto Guitar Festival in 87. And I did a duo thing with Ed Bickert, the, the you know, oh, the dean of Canadian legendary. jazz. Yeah. And an unbelievable thing for me just to be able to get to play with the guy, because, you know, I'm this, you know, rock star. Yeah. It, I do not belong on the same stage as Ed. And so we come out, I'm going to do one of my tunes, Suitcase Blues, and Ed's going to be playing along with me. And it, the crowd is mostly guitar weenies, right? They're, they're guys that are into guitar and love guitar, and, and it's mostly guys. But... And they're mostly guys that are there because they want it. Steve Morse is there from uh, Dixie Drags and Deep Purple, and and and, uh, and Kim Mitchell came and played with us that night. I mean, so it was a it was a star-studded kind of night. Leona Boyd was on the gig. So, um, anyways, the crowd starts this this roar starts coming up, and Ed is sitting there, and then the roar keeps going, and it's kind of getting stronger and louder. And he's sitting there with his old beat up telly. And he and he did a thing where it was like Jack Benny. He put his hand on his cheek, was like, oh my God, what is happening? You know, and I was laughing because he'd never experienced anything like that. Well, I used to go see him play at George's Spaghetti House or yeah. you know, those places, which were you were quiet when you went to see those jazz shows. You know, if you applaud, well, you would applaud, but it would be very, you know, polite oh, yeah. golf uh, clapping uh, in between songs. And they were very, very quiet gigs. So this would have been something unusual for him. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it, there's a part of him where you could see he's just he's barely stomaching it, you know, yeah. like he 
it's not his thing. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't really like it, but okay, Rick, but one Rick it got me on the cover of Guitar Player magazine, yeah. so I, I've got to play along here and oh well, you know. You're listening to Rick Emmett on the Richard Krauss show. His book Lay It on the Line: A Backstage Pass to Rockstar Adventure, Conflict and Triumph is available now wherever you buy fine books. But it wasn't like he was enjoying it, it was just it was kind of like but for me, I was going, "Oh, this is just He's finally experiencing what it feels like to be like honored yeah. in a roaring kind of way. Now, I've stood in front of the US Festival, yeah. May 29, 1983, you know, I don't know, anywhere between 250 and 400,000, depending on how many drugs you did and <laughs> make you drive all that. But that was just, that was an incredible afternoon. That was a uh, an amazing day in my life. And, you know, there's stories in the book. There's got to be a dozen. Uh, stories that I could tell you about what it's like to be in on the stage in that moment. But I also like it to, to, to be able to say, yeah, well, I know what it's like, you know, when, you know, one of the uh, roadies had an accident and fell off the truck, yeah. you know, and, and then we were dealing with that, you know, or what it was like when, I don't know, you know, the, the merch guys took baseball bats and went outside the building and chased off the guys that were selling bootleg stuff outside the building. Right, right. Like that would happen every, you know, six months, there would be one of those nights. And you just go like, whoa, you know, like those things don't happen to your average person. You're in the dressing room and you're going, oh man, there's like a, there's, there's a, there's a, a maelstrom that spins out of control all around me. And I'm just in the eye of the hurricane. The you also say in the book, creativity was and is it for me, and still is it for me. Uh, it's such a great line because I think it sums up uh, the whole ethos of the book. The whole idea of this book is uh, about leading your best creative life, and it's going to be different for everybody because creativity does not strike the same people or anyone the same way. Uh, yes. And so are you still writing songs? Are you playing guitar every day? Are you, you're writing? What, how do you scratch that creative itch? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I, mm -hmm. I, I play guitar every day and I'm writing and I've got a, a project I'm working on, a recording of 10 jazz guitar finger style kinds of things. Ed Bickert would be kind of, he's looking down and smiling yeah. and laughing. <laughs> but I'm, I'm playing a Telecaster, so the, it's it's entitled Ten Telecaster Tales," wow. uh, and it's it's Ed Bickert's influence. But it's obviously me. It's you know I can't reach Ed's level on Ed's level. I'm just doing me. Um, and I continue to write songs. I got the masters back from the era just after I left Triumph. There were three albums that I did for Duke Street Records. My life was pretty eclectic in those days. I was bouncing around. So I'm going to do two compilations, one that's kind of the hard rock stuff. And, and you know, this is, again, another thing of you reorganizing your past. And I go, OK, I'll play along. But I'm, you know, I'm not really, you know, this doesn't turn my crank. <laughs> but my friend Peter Cardinelli has a label called Alma Records. And I was taking some of the stuff that was much more sort of muso and, and uh, artsy. Yeah. And I was saying to Peter, hey, maybe we'll do a compilation, but maybe can I write some new ones? And so I wrote with a guy named Don Brightup about eight or nine songs. Don and I picked two. So I've st now I've still got, you know, five or six that are lying around after that. And I'm going, well, what'll I do with those? I don't know. You know, I'll decide after I do all the run of, of marketing for, right. for the memoir, I'll figure it out. But um, because, of course, that's the final thing, right? You, you, you can be creative. But then you, you, you have to, 
it's like the whole thing if the tree falling in the forest doesn't make a sound you know if i write a book or i or i you know make a guitar piece if i can't find an audience it hasn't really fulfilled itself mm -hmm. you know um so uh, you know i'm a, a an enough of a sort of a commercial ish artist that i kind of go well you really do have to figure out how you can find some kind of market for it you know so that's that's the, and that's a creative act too I think if you're if you are going to create, you create with an idea towards someone eventually seeing it or hearing it. And if you are authentic to yourself and you create something, you know, that that you like, there's going to be 10,000 other people out there that like it as well. It might not take over the world, but you you'll find your niche. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the Patti Smith book earlier, mm -hmm. like Patti Smith is an artist where. She's never going to be, you know, top 10 on Billboard, but she's had a really great life and an influential one mm -hmm. uh, by being Patti Smith, by be the best Patti Smith that you can be. Yep. And that's the lesson that she teaches everybody, you know. So and I really do respect art that's on that level, you know. But uh, having said that, my own tastes often run to things that do. Like I watched a thing about Taylor Swift the other night. And I'm, every now and then I'm turning and looking at my wife and I go, she's good. Like she, the, the, she's got a spine of steel, you know, uh, but she's she, and she's not afraid to put herself out there. And so she's a, she's a real artist. And I go, I, I, I'm into this. I like this. Yeah, She rides both sides of the line. And that's what I really like. She's got a head for business. And I love that she re-recorded her first albums when the, the rights were snatched away from her. I love yeah, that I her movie was released independently outside the studio system and made $125 million on its opening weekend. I mean, it's bonkers, right? Yeah, and yeah. she's a, she's a good songwriter and performer. So she, she has it all, uh, uh all together. I'm a, I, I wouldn't say I'm a Swifty, but I admire her a great deal. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Same thing. Uh, one last name I just want to throw out in front of you, and it occurred to me while you were talking about Ed Bickert, another name that has been sort of forgotten to time, I think, except among guitar players, uh, and maybe specifically Canadian guitar players, is uh, Lenny Bro. He must have been someone that you would have gravitated towards, because those records are unbelievable. Yes, and it, he could play on a level that literally... There was no one else on the planet Earth that could. of guitar players that I could name that were those kinds of players. But Lenny was a guy that, for example, finally uh, ended up in Chet Atkins' orbit because Chet sort of tried to take him under his wing and clean him up and, you yeah. know, uh, but Lenny was his own worst enemy in, in, in you know, tragic ways. Yeah. Uh, nevertheless, you know, his technique existed on a level where there's nobody else that can compare. Like, one of my favorite guitar players is uh, Tommy Emanuel. An acoustic player who is just, he's so dynamic and he, and he 
he tours just by himself because he really, he can be a one man band. His body is like a drum machine, and and he he's just unbelievably musical on a level that there's nobody else on the planet that's like him. And uh, another guy is Pat Metheny, mm-hmm. and, and 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 he's probably to me the the greatest guitar artist in the sense of that he can write and he can compose and he can arrange and he can play jazz and he can improvise, but his, you know, his, his melodies are so strong and uh, like, he's just he's a fantastic composer. So, and he's been doing it all his life and he doesn't slow down. His, mm-hmm. his work ethic is, is frightening. You know, you're listening to Rick Emmett on the Richard Krause show, his book, lay it on the line, a backstage pass to rock star adventure, conflict and triumph is available now wherever you buy fine books. So there, there's, there are those kind of guys where, and I don't want to think about them too much because right. it intimidates me. You know, I get to the point where I go, oh, like Lenny is the kind of guy, if you decide, like you'll only take a tiny little droplet mm-hmm. of his technique and incorporate it into your own, right. you know, because if you, like I had a teacher back in college, Peter Harris, he's passed away, but Peter was... Um, he was a real Lenny Bro acolyte. He even had a, a Holmes electric guitar custom made like that was Lenny's. And, and Peter ended up owning it because he was just such a Lenny freak. Wow. And uh, and he could do all of the, you know, those little harmonic bingle, dingle, yep. bingle, dingle, that harp style arpeggiating stuff yeah. that Lenny was. And Peter could do it and he could kill it. Like, um, but and Pete and I would jam and, and you know hang out at his house and drink wine and you know might smoke a joint or two. Yeah. And you know, uh he would have Lenny stories because he knew him way better than I did. He'd had private lessons with Lenny and you know, so yeah, I so I it, he did have a big part of my life, there's no question. Um, but you know, uh, having said all that, Richard, you know, there's guys in my life like Richie Blackmore of Deep Purple and yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm a rock guy, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, you know, these were my guys, you know, and that was a bigger part of my life than Lenny. And by the time I was getting to that point of all those kind of jazz guys, I would say Joe Pass and Ed Bickert were the two that I gravitated to going, oh, if I could only do that, because Lenny would be, you'd go, I'll never do that. Well, I I was listening to him the other day. There's a number of videos on YouTube that you can find uh, of him playing on various things. And I don't know how old they were. It might have been 50 years old, 45, 50 years old. And they still sound otherworldly. It's unbelievable. Yeah. 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 He had this uh, ability. This is something that I love where, where he took jazz technique country technique and flamenco technique and then it it, it was lenny technique yeah it's like yeah, yeah. these things came together in a way and i've always believed in that was, you know for those folks that aren't seeing my video feeder yeah. my my fingers are lacing together and showing an integrated you know this is the yeah. steeple here at the church like <laughs> uh lenny was uh had this and i've always loved that like i tried to do that in a rock band kind of way how can i get some jazz in there how can i get some blues in there you know uh a much more modest kind of way, you know. Um, nevertheless, a guy like Lenny was a guy that, you know, he he was out there. He was the lead dog of the of the sled, you know, and he was pulling everybody. Yeah. Well, Rick, thank you very much for this. What a pleasure to talk music and books and everything else with you today. All right, man. Thank you, Richard. It's been great. You've been listening to Rick Emmett on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Lay It on the Line, A Backstage Pass to Rockstar Adventure, Conflict, and Triumph, is available now wherever you buy fine books. 
If you want to learn more about Rick, his other projects, and solo work, check out his comprehensive website, www.rickemmett.com. And remember, there's no C in Rick. Apparently, they spelled his name wrong on the back jacket of Triumph's first album, so Emmett professionally changed the spelling of his name to Rick without the C rather than have the album recalled. Also, check out the documentary on his old band. It's called Triumph Rock and Roll Machine. It's streaming on Crave right now, and it gives you some insight into just how huge Triumph were at the height of their fame. A big thanks to Rick Emmett for spending some time with me today. But of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) 